Thank you for listening to Christian Ministries Church Podcast. You're joining us for our midweek service as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And now a message from our featured speaker, Chloe Davis. So we're continuing our Sermon on the Mount series. We're in part four right now. So we're going to be in Matthew 5. So I hope you've gotten the drill by now. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. We're going to be starting in verse 27 tonight. um, And we're going to be talking about uh, how Jesus addresses adultery and divorce. Uh, before we dive into the application of this passage, so while we're turning there, I'm going I'm to give us a, an introduction to how we want to approach this. Um, it's important for us as a church body to recognize that we apply the Word of God to our future and not let it condemn us for our past. So some of the ways that Scripture talks about adultery and divorce in other parts of Scripture is actually Jesus has an encounter with a woman caught in adultery, and then he also has an encounter with a Samaritan woman who had been uh, divorced five times. And so in John 8, when the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, he makes a point that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God before he tells her that he does not condemn her and to go and sin no more. So Jesus does not condemn her, but then he looks at her and he says, now go and sin no more. He doesn't condemn her for her past, but he commands her to sin no more in the future. So he releases her from her past and says, now go and sin no more in the future. So he releases her, he forgives her, he gives her grace and mercy for her past and tells her to continue on in her future. Then in John 4, we see the Samaritan woman who, we can infer based on the history of Jesus' culture, had been divorced five times. For what reason, we do not know, but we know that she had had five husbands. And Jesus addresses this in his encounter with her, that she had had five husbands and the woman that she was living with at the time she wasn't married to. Yet Jesus tells her, uses her to tell the truth about who he is to many in Samaria, which were enemies of a sort to the Jews. And because of her, many came to hear Jesus speak and believed in him because of, she said, come and hear a man that told me everything I ever did. So they all rushed to go, to go hear Jesus and then many believed in him because of her words to them to, to persuade them to go see Jesus. So there's this saying that floats around in church culture a bit that's along the lines of what God does in you, he wants to do through you. So whatever God does in your life, he also wants to do through you to allow you to reach and testify to other people of who he is. And when Jesus is speaking to this woman, he's releasing her from her five previous husbands to make it known to her that he is going to be her bridegroom under the new covenant. And so he releases us, offers us forgiveness, and we are no longer tied to our past. And the reason why this is so important in in the history of scripture is because the Samaritans were people that were hated by the Jews partly because they were descendants of the Israelites that had intermarried with foreign settlers. So basically what's the, what this means is that they were descendants of the Israelites, they were descendants of God's chosen people, and they had intermarried with foreign settlers that were pagans. And so these foreign settlers worshipped other gods. And so whenever these, whenever these Samaritans chose to intermarry with the foreign settlers that were pagans, they also ended up giving themselves to foreign gods. So they turned their back on the God of Israel and they became Samaritans by choosing to intermarry with the foreign settlers. So God used the Samaritan woman. So remember, she runs all the way back to Samaria, says, come and see a man that told me everything I ever did. He uses the Samaritan woman who had been walking through marital brokenness 
five previous husbands to lead a people, to lead a people group to him that needed redemption in the area of choosing false gods by choice of who they married. And so he uses a woman that had been through five different husbands and was not living with the man that she was married to at the current moment. And then she goes back and she reconciles these people who had, who had worshiped false gods um, by choice of who they married. So they chose wrongly in who they married, but here's the Samaritan woman and she's coming to bring reconciliation so they can see Jesus, so they can hear Jesus and so they can believe in Jesus. So what God did in the Samaritan woman in that moment, he also did through her, very close together. It was all compact. So that being said, if you have committed adultery or walked through a divorce, the blood of Jesus releases you from that past so you can go live a different future using your shortcomings and failures as a way to point to God's goodness, faithfulness, mercy, and redemptive power, because that's who God is. We don't walk in condemnation of our past, which will actually keep us bound to our past. So if we're walking in condemnation of our past and it's constantly on our shoulders and we're constantly thinking about it and the enemy is constantly reminding us of it, we're gonna remain bound to that. Rather, we walk in the assurance that Jesus, when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, that he actually meant it. So it's finished, it's done, it's gone, that's the past. We're moving toward a new future with him. So as I was preparing my heart to communicate how fully we've been set free and changed by the blood of Jesus, the Lord brought the hymn, Jesus paid it all to my remembrance. In case you forgot or don't know, I doubt anyone forgot or doesn't know, but if you did, the words are, or the main words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So there are two passages that the hymn primarily comes from, Isaiah 118 and Psalm 51. I'm gonna read a bit of each. Isaiah 118 says, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And then a, a passage from Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is the psalm that comes from David's lips after committing adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. He was washed as, he has washed us as white as snow, and as we know David, as the man after God's own heart, regardless of our past, we can be men and women of God after his heart because of who he is and what he's done for us. Okay, are we in Matthew 5? Are we in Matthew 5 now? Okay, cool. All right, <laughs> Matthew 5, verse 27. It says, you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So while the Pharisees were only concerned with the action of adultery itself, believing that if the act only occurred in someone's heart and went no further, 
God would not know of it. But actually, Psalm 66, 18 speaks to this directly. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So we understand that sin actually begins in a very deep place within our hearts. It doesn't begin as an action. It doesn't necessarily even begin as a thought, but it begins in the deep places of our hearts. And so we are to confess the sin that begins in our hearts. And so when Jesus is saying, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he's saying, hey, what takes place in your heart before it even becomes an action, that matters and that's important and that's what God looks at. However, because of the Pharisees' prideful thoughts about themselves, they considered themselves to be above the lowly, that's how it's referred to in scripture, the lowly that would commit adultery. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14 says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We see how the tax collector runs to repentance, and the Pharisee ran to justify whatever he was doing. This is a heart issue, not an adultery issue. Adultery is clear, it is wrong, Jesus addresses that, but it is much more than adultery. In an, an adultery issue, it is a heart issue showing us that sin begins in the heart and God looks at the heart. So when we sin, when we miss the mark, it is actually a reflection of our heart condition. Are we stewarding our relationship with Jesus? Are we fanning the, fl fan the flame of our faith like Paul writes about? Do we love God or is he an obligation in the midst of our busy schedules? Is he on the throne seat of our hearts or do we prioritize other things over him? Scripture speaks plainly about how temptation comes from our desires and our desires birth actions and our sinful actions birth death. So I'm a very visual learner. And so the way that I picture this in my mind is our desires, our desires birth actions and our sinful actions birth death. So you have desires, sinful actions, death. And we're on, the, we're on, the, we're on a, a progress line here. Desires, actions, death, okay? James 1, 14 through 15 says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So again, we're on this progress line. Desire, action, death. Galatians 5 discusses, and this is the, the chapter about fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5 discusses how when we let the Holy Spirit guide our lives, we won't do what our sinful nature craves because the sinful nature wants to do evil and the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of evil. So what is the opposite of evil? Good, yes, <laughs> good. The opposite of evil is good and so the spirit gives us good desires. So, so whereas our flesh, our, our old man, desires the things of the flesh, it desires 
evil things, the Spirit gives us new desires, gives us desires that are from Him, from the heart of God. The passage goes on to say the following, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And it gives a list of the results of of what happens when when we follow the desires of our sinful nature. But what's important to remember here is that we follow the desires of our sinful nature. It's not, oh, I tripped and made a mistake. It's, oh, I actively followed it. I saw it and I walked toward it. I followed it. What's interesting is that the first half of the book of Jeremiah speaks to how we actively follow desires that are not from God, but how he can change our desires. Jeremiah 7, 24, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts, they went backward instead of forward. Jeremiah 9, 14, instead they have stubbornly followed their own desires. Jeremiah 11, 8, but your ancestors did not listen or even pay attention. Instead, they stubbornly followed their own evil desires. Jeremiah 13, 10, these wicked people refuse to listen to me. They stubbornly follow their own desires and worship other gods. Jeremiah 16, 12, and you are even worse than your ancestors. You stubbornly follow your own evil desires and refuse to listen to me. Jeremiah 18, 12, but the people replied, don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. Jeremiah 23, 17, they keep saying to those who despise my word, don't worry, the Lord says you will have peace. And to those who stubbornly follow their own desires, they say no harm will come your way. But then God, don't we love the but then God? Jeremiah 32, 40, the Lord says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. God changes our desires. So we don't have to actively follow the desires of the flesh, but we can actively choose to follow the desires that Holy Spirit places within us because he is within us. We can live a life, we can live a life guided by the Holy Spirit, allowing him to give us his desires, but that comes from Romans 12 2, letting God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will God's desires for you, which are good and pleasing and perfect, and watch his will for you become what you desire for yourself. So God changes the desires of that place in our hearts that scripture speaks about how we are to turn away from that and how adultery actually begins deep within the heart. So if sin begins in the heart, we must continually walk in repentance like David did in Psalm 51 and like the tax collector did in that Luke passage and give God the time to change the way that we think. Moving on to uh, verse 29 and 30. It says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, <laughs> in other words, it is better to get rid of the thing that is leading you into sin than suffering eternally. Even then, as a human, we subject ourselves to suffering. Scripture calls it experiencing death when we sin in the here and the now. So even though we don't want to suffer eternally, we also don't want to subject ourselves to suffering in the here and now. And so we follow God's way for our lives because he is creator that created the whole earth and that created us as human beings and he knows what's best. So how desperate are we to rid our lives of sin? 
How desperate are we to rid our lives of what tears it apart? Are you tired of wrestling with comparison and jealousy when God fearfully and wonderfully created you to be you? Delete social media. Do you get a knot in your stomach each time you speak badly about someone? Surround yourself with people that, rather than gossiping with you, will call you out and correct you. Iron sharpens iron. Are you sick of struggling with pornography, substance abuse, lust, you name it, whatever it is? Confess it to someone, bring it into the light like scripture talks about. Confess it to someone that can hold you accountable and allow that person to show you the heart of the Father by speaking identity into the place that kills you on the inside. Hey, that's not who you are. That's not who God says that who you, that's not who God says that you are. You know who you are because God speaks his truth in his word about who you are. How desperate are you? Jesus isn't asking people to literally cut off their arm or gouge out their eye, but he is making a point of the severity of sin and it will kill you. It'll kill your joy, your peace, your relationships with others, how you see yourself, how you see God, and the enemy will use your sin to condemn you when it is God the Father that is ready to pour out his love and mercy on you. How desperate are you? The woman with the issue of blood in Luke 8 did not have a desperation issue. She was utterly desperate to no longer bleed, to no longer be outcast by society, to no longer have physical human contact. So because she had been bleeding for 12 years, anyone, no one could come in contact with blood in this culture and in this day and in this age. And so she would have to, technically by the rules of society, run through people or walk around people and yell unclean. And she wasn't technically even allowed to be in the city or in the town. And so she was desperate to, to get out of that place of being subject to that culture because of her medical condition. She stopped Jesus when he was on the way to heal someone else. So Jesus is on his way to literally heal someone else. And here's this woman with the issue of blood running up to him to touch his robe. She was healed because of her desperate faith. Her desperate faith. Jesus was her only option. Scripture talks about how she had been to doctors. She had done everything that she could. She had spent all of her money trying to become healed, trying to figure out what the issue was. Jesus was her only option. And she was desperate enough to go to his feet. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is sitting in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. I read this because we throw off the sin that slows us down and trips us up. So we, we cut off that armor, we gouge out that eye, which doesn't necessarily look like literally cutting off that armor, gouging out that eye, but we do whatever it takes. We throw off the sin that slows us down and trips us up and we look at him. We make eye contact with him and his eyes burn with fire out of love for us. And so we, we, can, we make eye contact with him. We stare at him, we spend time with him and we don't give up, we keep going. Even when we fall, we get back up. Proverbs 24, 16, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. And that's what we do. We get up again. Verses 31 and 32. 
You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a woman who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. So there are a few other passages where Jesus discusses divorce, but they all speak very similar ideas and guide, guidelines regarding divorce. So they're all very similar. They're all, they all just, they look, they look much alike. And each of them brings up different passages uh, from the Old Testament that Jesus actually addresses in the moment. Genesis 127 is one of them. God made them male and female. Genesis 2.24, the two are united into one. So what happens in marriage is two become one. The, another idea that's talked about in all of the passage was, passages within the Gospels is since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So what happens in marriage covenant is two joined together. And I'm learning, I'm learning this as an, as an engaged woman now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so two come together and let no man split apart what God has joined together. So under marriage covenant, they are under the eyes of God and God has joined them together. Divorce is not what God originally intended. That's a, that's a quote from these, from these uh, gospel passages. Other passages that deal with divorce, if you, wanna, if you want to look at them, Matthew 19, verses three through nine, one of the gospel passages. Mark 10, two through 12 is another one of the gospel passages. Luke 16, 18, which is another one of the gospel passages. And then you've got 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 16, which is something that, that Paul writes about. And then even in Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. Literally, the word literally says God hates divorce because he makes you one with the person that you marry. And so under the eyes of God, you you become this unbreakable, indissoluble bond that should not be broken easily. So why is divorce a big deal? Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32 say, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So the marriage unit, the marriage bond, is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. There is nothing else in scripture like this that that explains that example and that analogy so clearly that it's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Marriage is an illustration of the unity between Christ and the church. It should not easily be separated because it gives us the example of how Christ and the church are not two, but one. We're unified. We as the church body are unified with Christ. We do his work we, we share in the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the commands that Jesus gave us, right? We, we are one. We do this with him. Therefore, God intended and designed marriage to be forever because unity with himself and the church is forever. Unity with God and his people, it's not going to end. It's forever. Now, There are those that would argue that since some of the passages I mentioned earlier talk about unfaithfulness, in the situation of unfaithfulness, there is allowance for divorce. But we know that God remains faithful even when we are faithless. So he sets the example for how to remain faithful under a marriage covenant as he remains faithful under the covenant that he's entered with us. 
And even in, the, in, the, in some of the other gospel passages, it talks about how uh, Moses gave allowance or permission for divorce um, because of their hard hearts. Well, we're not, we're not called to have hard hearts. Ephesians 4 verses 31 and 32 talk about how we are to have a tender heart, a tenderness of heart, walking in forgiveness of those that have wronged us. So our hearts are to remain tender. That being said, we do not condone abusive relationships, and, that, and if that is your situation, please speak to someone about it and get help. Each individual situation is not addressed in Scripture, but we can walk through hardships together and ask God for wisdom to navigate what decisions should be made for our good in His glory, Romans 8, 28, that things work out for our good in His glory as, as those that walk together in this life with Him. And even thinking about Galatians 6, 2, which says that we are called to carry each other's burdens. So how do we as the church body, how do we as a family carry each other's burdens when someone's going through a difficult time or someone is experiencing a divorce or someone is going through relational abuse? How do we address that? How do we walk through people, walk with people through that? How do we, how do we be the church? So overall, as we wrap up, um, both adultery and divorce uh, can cause lots of pain in people's personal lives, between marriages and family relationships, within the family unit itself, and by effect, the society that we live in. And so what happens is when marriages start breaking apart, when people start normalizing, um, committing adultery against their spouse that they've committed to under covenant by God, is that things start, things start coming apart, and that marriages start coming apart, and the family units start coming apart, well, then what are we teaching children? Children are going to start coming apart emotionally, mentally, they're, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to walk through that as a family unit, and so then by effect, it, it contributes to, to a breaking apart of society and how people function within society. God's laws protect us from that hurt and pain. All of his laws protect us. He, he is a protector. Although we are not condemned for our past, following God's laws in our lives is the best for us because, again, as creator of the whole universe and as creator of us and knowing that we were made in his image and that if we're made in his image, he knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows exactly what we're experiencing. He knows exactly what we're going through because we're literally like in his image. We're literally just a, like a copy of him in human form. He knows what's best. So don't forget what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. God is concerned about the condition of your heart and not only your actions. And we are to rid our lives of the sin that trips us up by remaining desperate for him. Will you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We love you, Lord. And um, we just thank you for tonight. And we thank you for the way that you minister deeply to our hearts and for the way that, God, you get to, you get to touch um, the places of our hearts that need healing, uh, the places of our hearts that need correction. God, we just thank you for the words that you speak. And um, we love you, Lord. We just ask that you would uh, lead us throughout the rest of this week. Um, and that, Father, we would glorify you in all that we say and that we do. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you on Sunday. Thank you for listening to this message from Christian Ministries Church. If this message impacted you and you'd like to sow into our ministry, you can give at cmchurch.com. If you'd like to listen to more of our messages, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Christian Ministries. God bless.